Now, Heavenly Father, we just quiet our hearts before you. We, we always like to acknowledge, Lord, as we have the word of God and come down to us, God breathed, we know it's from heaven, it's not the work of any man. We pray that the Holy Spirit who inspired these words would now open the eyes of our understanding to help us to hear the truth that you have for us, the truth that you say will make our hearts free. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Well, it's not yet two weeks out from a New Year's Day. I'm wondering how many people here have made a New Year's resolution. Let me see. Show of hands. About a third of us. Did you know uh, 53% of Americans love to make these kinds of resolutions. Uh, Let me tell you about the top five. I'll count backwards and then you guess which number one, all right? So number five was getting a new job. Number four was exercise. Number three was better budgeting. Number two was getting organized. And number one, if only I could Lose weight. Wow. Those were just came right out so smoothly. Well, I think that most of us struggle with these areas and certainly helpful to think about such. But interestingly, though, as you uh, search as you will, and I Googled around the top list, you will find that there's an arena of life that is noticeably absent, and that would be Goals about personal character, you know, like becoming more generous or less critical or um, having more integrity or having less pride. Uh, More of these kinds of resolutions would be a good thing because biblically speaking, uh, and we'll see this in this morning's text, it is who we are, the quality of our character, that matters most important in the sight of God. Somebody had the opportunity to ask God, God the Son, what was the most important thing about life in the sight of God? And here was Jesus' answer. How you relate with God in his love and how you treat others. Those two concepts which involve our character is what's really important. Here's what he said. The most important thing anybody could do is love the Lord your God with everything you have and love other people with the same focus and intensity in which you're all about yourself. He said the whole of God's commandments hinge on those two concepts. So in light of these truths, I thought here in the new year, we're only two weeks out, helpful to focus on what the Lord says is the most important thing. Uh, And it all seems to center around one character quality called love. So I felt my heart drawn to a very well-known portion of scripture out of the 1189 uh, chapters in the Bible. It's probably the most famous of them all. 13 verses attribute to the king of all character qualities that would be love. So why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians 13. And I'll read all 13 verses and then we'll divide it up into three paragraphs. 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have no love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It isn't proud. It isn't rude. It is not self-seeking. It isn't easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they'll cease, and where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect will disappear. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like one. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see in a, as in a poor reflection, as in a mirror, but uh, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Now, if you take these words and you disconnect them from the context, I guess you would have a hymn of love. And, you know, you read these words at a wedding and everybody goes, ooh, it's just so lovely, wonderful words. But in context of where they appear in 1 Corinthians, these words are a stinging, harsh corrective. They are a rebuke to a church that had it going on in a lot of ways that we like to see church happen, but there was a missing ingredient. And so I see the Holy Spirit really riding through the Apostle Paul and stirring up these first century Christians to action to make some resolutions. And I, and I think the first verses are going to say we should start uh, thinking of greatness the way God thinks of greatness, verses 1 through 3. And I think verses 1 through 3 are meant to put the fear of God in them and in us. <laughs> and number two, the second paragraph, we should start to define love biblically. What does the Bible say about love? Ver verses 4 through 7. And, and that should make us despair of ourselves because love is such a lofty thing, we can understand by seeing it in action that it doesn't come naturally to human beings. And then thirdly, just that the resolution would be to grow up spiritually. So we need to start thinking about what God sees as success and also to define that love by the Bible's way. And so the first point here, we should change the way we think about greatness uh, because if we don't, we could find out that we're making resolutions, we're spending a lot of time and effort and years of the one life that we have because it's appointed unto men once to die and then a judgment. 
we might find that what we thought was important, the goals that we were making, the resolutions that we were setting, weren't important in the sight of God. And we are going to stand before him one day to give an account of our lives. So we want to make sure that we're on the same page with how he thinks. If he thinks something is great, and this would define you as having lived an accomplished life for him, then we need to be on that same page with him. And so the Corinthians were not. They had a different understanding of what Christian success looked like. You know, so it's important. You know how in Isaiah chapter 55, the Lord is saying, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways of doing things and your ways of doing things couldn't be more different. For as high as the heavens are from the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Well, thank goodness that we have the revealed word of God, which will show us what his thoughts are because we would never know them since they're so vastly different from the way we do things. I mean, I'm just thinking off the top of my head. Uh, in God's kingdom, rich can be bad. Rich can be poor and poor can be rich. And in order to find the Lord, we lose ourselves. And if we find ourselves we may lose the Lord. And so it's sort of an upside-down kingdom. We want to know what God thinks is successful so that we can be on the same page with him. So the Corinthians really needed this kind of correction. They were a happening church, but they were in love with their own gifts and abilities. They were enamored with the charismatic gifts, and they were uh, measuring Christian success in a wrong way. They were focusing on what they were doing for God instead of who they were becoming for him. Character really is what matters. Character is what God is after. And the problem is that gifts can operate independently of character. So character isn't what defines, character defines us rather, it's not the gifts and the things that we do. Now they were a happening church for sure. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, I thank God the grace given you guys, you don't lack any spiritual gifts. So there in Corinth at the church that Paul had founded, they had all 27 and more gifts operating happily. These folks were enamored with these gifts, and that wasn't the problem. When they came together, there was preaching and teaching and words of wisdom and knowledge. There was evangelism. People were getting saved. People were getting healed. Uh, people were giving generously and serving and helping and showing mercy all of these wonderful gifts and fellowshipping singing playing instruments reading scriptures and praying but something was wrong something was missing seriously twisted people were avoiding people they weren't speaking to one another uh, there were these little cliques not a lot of smiling, and there was just kind of a cold, empty chill in the air because there wasn't much love. 
They learned how to do church, and they learned how to do church good with the exception of how to love God and let that love of God work in them and through them and to love other people. So in order to fix that connection that was missing, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 was born. So since uh, these guys were so enamored with with spiritual gifts, the Holy Spirit now goes uh, through the Apostle Paul to start talking about spiritual gifts in chapter 12. So he's saying, here's where they come from, here's why they're given, here's how they should be used, and smack dab in the middle of all the spiritual gift talk was this line that should have made them all kind of, uh, kind of shocked them all, quite frankly. Here's what he says. He's talking about these spiritual gifts at almost like in a charismatic conference of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then suddenly he says, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all, a way more excellent, a better way of going about your Christian life. And I can just hear them. Using my spiritual gift to see God use me and work through me, you're telling me there's something better, more excellent than that? And Paul is saying, yeah, there is. Better than Paul. The Holy Spirit is saying there's a better way to think about Christian service and Christian life. The Christian life and Christian ministry must flow out of God's love working in us and through us or it's all a waste of time. A loveless church is a godless church. And so um, he's going to tell them about this better way. So here are the opening verses. Paul's got to talk first and correct their thinking about what makes a person great in the eyes of God. So Paul creates a short list there in verses 1 through 3, the list that I say should put the fear of God in us. Um, And he's going to take... Uh, hypothetical examples of their greatest accomplishments for God, what they think that would be. So he opens with what they loved the most was speaking in tongues and and eloquence and preaching the gospel, God-inspired speech. And here's a paraphrase. He says, and, and allow me to contemporize it just a bit. Whether I can preach the gospel like Billy Graham and stand up and wow a crowd with my smooth words, or pray or or speak with the spirit that the angels use, or if I can sing like an angel, without love it's just a bunch of noise. You know, it makes a lot of sense, and we all know uh, that kind of thing can happen. I was watching an interview on Larry King Live's a couple years ago, a very talented singer, does a lot of jazz, and I, I really liked his music. Throughout the interview, he was really rude. He was bossy, uh, talking all about his achievements and uh, using profane speech, uh, kind of uh, insulted Larry King, and it was kind of got a little bit of a write-up, like, wow, how rude was that? 
And then they cut to some of his music. And I was sitting there feeling that, like, wow, he used the Lord's name in vain. He was talking in an arrogant way. And, I, and then his music came on. And it didn't sound as beautiful as it had just a few minutes before. We just kind of know what that means. It's easy to be impressed or fascinated by beautiful words or eloquently spoken uh, sermons or moving melodies or mysterious spiritual language that comes from God. Uh, But a lack of character ruins the whole thing. You know, it kind of becomes like, I don't know if we have the Charlie Brown little 15-second snippet cartoon. Charlie Brown's teacher, you remember her lovely voice? All right, here we go. That's the obnoxious kind of uh, sound that just kind of puts us to sleep, turns us off. Nobody wants to hear any gospel or good news from somebody who's not very nice, as somebody who preaches at people. This is the kind of thing that Paul is talking about. Uh, I was at Mount Hermon once at a men's retreat, and one of my favorite speakers was speaking. His name is Pastor Rich Chafin. And he's up there, and he's preaching, and the side door opened up a little bit, and the alarm went on. And they couldn't figure out how to turn the alarm off. That alarm made the most obnoxious buzzer sound you have ever heard in your life. And the poor guy was like, should I stop? And everybody's like, no, go ahead. We'll get it. We'll get it figured out. So he kept on preaching, and all you could hear was this whole time just a terrible sound. And you're just sitting there trying to pay attention. I kind of think that that's maybe heaven's perspective sometimes with not just preachers, but Christians are always sharing. And when the life doesn't match what the lips are speaking, I think this is the point. What goodness, what good is it when we speak and sing and play if we're not reflecting from our hearts the God of love? It's a message about love. So Paul calls, uh, uh, puts a couple other examples out there. He says, what if I could foretell future events in God's name or unlock the mysteries of the universe? He, said, he uses a phrase Jesus coined. He says, a man with faith uh, can move great mountains, but without love, he's bound to set them down right on top of somebody's head. You need love even to move mountains. Uh, it's important. The last two examples are really meant to wow. He says, well, how about if I give all my possessions away? What if I gave all my possessions to the Salvation Army? Or, I'm sorry, Julie, the Redwood Gospel Mission Thrift Store? on Piner Road. What if I did that? Um, Surely that would mean something because people think sacrifice is the highest virtue and sacrifice without love is not. Love is the highest virtue. Sacrifice is not. How about if I die the death of a martyr? Well, no, not if it's not done in love. 
You go from hero to zero in less than 60 seconds for sure. Uh, let me give you an example of somebody who would die a martyr's death that doesn't count. When you say Allah Akbar and then blow yourself up for your cause, you give up your life for your cause and the lives of everybody on the bus as well. That is an example of where there's no love and yet a martyred sacrifice, it, it's, it's a zero. And in fact, less than zero. So some people do wonderful things in Jesus' name, but the Lord still says on that great day, you may have been able to do this stuff, but we didn't ever meet. But I did miracles in your name. I proclaimed your word in your name. And he said, but I never met you. It wasn't in love. It wasn't about God's love. And so be careful about that. Because it's not about the things we do. It's about who we know and the character change that he is making in our hearts and lives. I like what Gordon Fee said. Uh, possession of a spiritual gift is not the sign of the spirit or even of Christian maturity. Love is. I want to add before we go on to the next paragraph. Did you notice he's not saying that the deed in itself is, isn't without some value? He's saying you would be without the value. Did you notice here in verse 1? I am nothing. I am a noisy gong. Or verse 2, I am nothing. Or verse 3, I gain nothing. So it's not like nothing good comes of it. It just is the lack of character, in this case love, disqualifies you from sharing anything good that comes out of that experience in this life or in the life to come. So now that he has their attention and ours, and shown us how crucial love is to, in everything that we say and do, he does us the favor of defining what he means by love. And so here's the biblical definition. We start out with a word that was never in classical Greek to begin with. The word for God's love well, didn't exist until the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit, agape, was a form of giving love that came from God and God alone. Now, the Greeks had love for, you know, husband and wife love and parent-child love and brother-to-brother -brother and friendship kind of love, but they didn't have the kind of love that comes from God, which is a giving kind of love. It's that unconditional, I want nothing from you, expect nothing back, I just love for the sake of loving the object of the beloved's good is the expectation and reason and purpose and goal and motivation of love. It's the kind of love you could pluck its beard out, you could whip it and flog its back, and you could nail it to a cross, and it would respond kindly and say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. In fact, 1 John defines love this way. He says, this is agape. And then he says that God first loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the only way to define what this word is, is a picture of God Almighty on a Roman cross paying 
for your sins and my sins. That is this incredible love. It's not a feeling. It's not, it, it's a decision. We, knew, we know it's not a feeling because we got a glimpse of what Jesus went through before he went to the cross. He didn't feel like doing it. He said, Father, as I'm sweating the drops of blood thinking about this, if there's any other way this cup could pass from me, so be it, but nevertheless, your will. So we know it's not a feeling. It's a decision to act on the behalf of the object of his love at the expense of his own comfort, convenience, and ultimately his life. So verses 4 through 7, here comes the description and the first words in verse 4 tell us what kind of person you would be if you were loving. Patient and kind, not envious, not boastful, not proud. So here's the first word. You would be patient if you're loving. The word in the Greek is makathumos. And it means long time through the fire. King James has it right. It's long suffering. Now, um, it means to put up with constant frustration, to put up with continual irritation, to put up with ceaseless interruptions, to put up with constant setbacks, or to put up with relentless opposition. You know what? This is a hard thing to do. It's hard enough for little things that go wrong. I was in a grocery line. The woman in front of me, a simple little problem. The clerk opened up the eggs, and my, oh, my, she had a little egg that had just a little dent. It wasn't busted open. It just had a little flaw. And so she wanted to replace the eggs for the lady. And so she sent Charlie back there. And about 25 minutes later, after the hen had laid the egg and they got the egg and brought it back, it was the wrong carton. We need the organic brown ones. We don't need that. We can't even handle that. And all he's saying is love is patient. It's long-suffering. We can't even handle the little things. I was playing with, with an, uh, my iPhone, and it was clicking away, and somebody looked at it who had a, a, a better iPhone and said, your phone is so slow. <laughs> it was moving so fast. It, for me, it was very fast. But we've just like, and then some people might be saying, you know what? I'm pretty good in those situations. I can really knuckle through. I just kind of grip my teeth. And then he goes and ruins and he says, and kind. And so that you are through the fire a long time with a smile, not a fake one, a real sweet spirit that just has patience and understanding and consideration. Amen? I saw a movie recently about that fake smile and patient tone. A lady chef was uh, in the back, and she, somebody ordered a steak, and they sent it back because it wasn't rare enough. 
And so she rolled her eyes and she says, okay. And so she made another one and it went back and it came back again. And this time with an insult. And so she took a pronged fork and threw a big piece of beef and ran, uh, walked out quickly into the restaurant with the beef dangling from the pronged fork. And then she drove it into the table in front of the guy through the beef and said with a smile, I heard you like your steak rare. <laughs> now, that's how most of us deal with irritations. <laughs> I mean, I, I thought it was very clever. <laughs> now, he says he moves on. And if you're a loving person, you're not envious because you're happy for other people when something happens nice for them. When they make more money than you do, when they get the job you wanted, when they get the boyfriend, when they get the ring, when they drive a nicer car, you're happy for them because love rejoices in the happiness and prosperity of others. It doesn't matter to you who was up for the job or who got the credit or the award because love, God's love, is so enthralled for the good pleasure of the other. Amen? I thought there would be a little less amens there, and I was right. Uh, You're not proud or boastful because it's not about you. It's about the other person. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 says... Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. The Greek word for pride there is to be puffed up with an inflated perception of your own self-importance. Verses 5 and 6 move from what it would look like in you to what it looks like, love looks like relationally. So here's the rub and what most people don't realize. Paul is using examples that he knows the Corinthians are, are not living up to. So he says, number one, it's not rude. Love is not rude. And then you go to find out that in chapter 11, they're going to home fellowship groups. They're having the Lord's Supper. And people are arriving, and some of the slaves can't get off in time, and so they're late. So people are eating all the food, and drinking the wine, and getting drunk. And then the slaves would come in late, the Christians, part of the meeting, and there'd be nothing on the table, and there'd be a bunch of drunk people laying around the room. And this was at the Lord's Supper. So he says, "Uh, by the way, love is not rude, if you're wondering, Corinthians. Then he goes on and he says, and it's not self-seeking. In chapter 1, the bunch of people who just thought what they thought uh, about Christian philosophy of ministry or teaching mattered more than the, the harmony of the whole. And so one person would say, hey, I like Pastor uh, Paul. I like his teaching. And there was somebody else who said, you know what I think? I think we need more of Apollos. And somebody else would say, you know what? We need Peter. When he came here, he's the one with the right teaching for this church. And then there was Mr. Spiritual, 
who said, you know what, you guys can have your human teachers. I don't need a human teacher. I follow Christ. And so they had all of their uh, self-concerns and perceptions and caused a lot of division. So he said, love isn't that way. Uh, With God's love, egos are sacrificed for unity in the whole. Then he goes on, it's not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Uh, Chapter 5, we find out that these Corinthians were suing each other. They were taking each other to court. So now doesn't it make sense that he says, you know what, love is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. It's exactly what they were not doing. So I don't know what was going on. Somebody backed into somebody else's chariot. You know, uh, somebody loaned a shovel. You didn't return my shovel. I'm taking you to court. You know, or your dog ate my cat. You know, I don't know what the problem was. But here's what the apostle says. He says, if any of you have a dispute with one another, dare you take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before Christian brothers? Is it possible that there's nobody among you smart enough to judge the matter between yourselves, but instead one brother goes to law against another? And this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already. And here's what love would do. Why not rather be wronged. What? Are you kidding me? Wronged? I'm in the right, and you want me to say, oh, it's okay, I'm going to be wronged. Yeah, that's what the Bible says. Why not rather be wronged than asserting that you are right and causing a big fat scene and causing more trouble than it's worth. Why not for the sake of Christian unity and love rather to be wronged? So he says, love isn't easily angered and it doesn't keep any records of wrongs. That would stop them from suing each other. And lastly, he says, love doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. This is the part that sets God's love in most obvious ways, against the love that's in the world, and it rubs the world the wrong way. Simply put, it's love is not okay with evil. It doesn't go along with wrongdoing, but it is guided by God's truth. And they definitely needed to hear it. Chapter 5. They were well known in the community for a type of sexual immorality that didn't often happen. Some man was having sexual relations with his stepmother, and the church was sort of proud about it. They used to talk to people in the marketplace. Yeah, yeah, we're the church where the guy is with a stepmother. Can you believe it? They were proud, Paul says. He says, and you're proud about it. He says, you think it's cool. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put him out of your fellowship? He says, your boasting is not good. We're the church with that guy and his stepmom, you're saying. Well, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, 
In that case, you would have to leave the world. But I'm talking about not associating with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy or worships idols or is a slanderer, is a drunkard or swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. And so with humility and mercy and grace, uh, lifestyles of unbelievers really don't put us off as Christians, and we struggle with our brothers and sisters who struggle. We never give up on these kinds of people, but love has a moral distinction, and it upholds the truth and God's morality. It is not loving if you know somebody's in danger to pat that person on the back and say, go your merry way, and you happen to know the bridge is out up ahead. It is a loving thing to do, is to say, you know, I know you don't think the bridge is out, but I happen to know on good authority that that bridge is out, and it's a fairly dangerous bridge at that. It is loving to restrict your children from the freeway and not let them play close to it. It is a loving thing to make these kinds of distinctions. I saw this uh, show on Animal Planet where this uh, guy lived way inland, and for some reason he, he thought he saw an alligator in his backyard, in his pond that he had created, and nobody believed him. This is impossible. Not even the, the, the gator boys who came to get the gator out Nobody believed this guy could have an alligator. He said, trust me, there's an alligator in there. He was getting problems from people because he wouldn't let anyone go in his backyard and enjoy the pond. It was hot summer day. Why can't the grandkids go out there? Because crazy grandpa thinks there's some alligator out there in the pond. He said, as long as I'm alive, I have a moral obligation even though I got to take a lot of flack from people who don't believe me that there's an alligator under there to do my part to keep people safe. Whatever that means. People don't like me. People call me crazy. I don't care. It's dangerous to go back there. And guess what popped up after a few weeks? These big eyes. And those big eyes were connected to a big, long nose. And I don't know if that whole thing is called a nose. If so, it would be rather large. But if you opened up that part of it, you see a very dangerous row of teeth. You know, it's a loving thing. It's a loving thing. Uh, it can get you into trouble. There's a pastor who won't be praying a benediction at the inauguration now because somebody went through his sermons from 10 years ago and found sections where he talked about guardrails to human sexuality in a loving, very honest way. You have to take a little bit of heat because love doesn't go along with everything. Love is guided by the truth revealed in God's words. And then finally, we have here just a few words of hope, which is really nice because now the call comes to make some changes, to make some resolutions, to take action. So first of all, it was without love, our greatest triumphs 
just don't have any value. And number two, God's love, this kind of love we've been talking about, isn't found naturally in our human heart. So Paul says now in the last verses, it's time to grow up and become Christians who have maturity. So he says, first of all, take your eyes off the gifts. It's not about stepping up your game or working harder or honing the abilities that you have because the gifts are temporary. They're weak and they're headed for the trash can. The gifts and abilities that God gives to us to use in the church have been referred to like a torch. They give light in the night. But once it's noonday, when the Lord appears, none of the gifts are necessary anymore because perfection has come. Now, the silver-tongued evangelists, the best pastors, dedicated missionaries, gifted teachers, uh, they got to get a new job. Why? Because the Lord says, no longer will a man teach his neighbor, know the Lord, because they'll all know me. Now, whatever gift or ability that you have, it ends when you see the Lord. For sure, we all have a new service to render to the Lord, but it's in a totally different venue. And so he's in a way saying, could you get your eyes off of the thing you do for the Lord and on to the Lord himself? And he's pointing now in these last few verses to a face, to a person, to the future perfection that's coming. So I think we'll discover here as he closes out in verses 4 through 7, he's saying that love is a person. He's saying love suffers long. Well, who suffers long? Not me, not you. Jesus. Jesus suffers long. Love acts with kindness. Who acts with kindness? Well, us, you know, here and there when it's convenient. But not me, not you, but Jesus. Jesus is kind. He acts with kindness. Love is protecting. Love believes in you. Love gets people through. Love is a person. Jesus And here's the hope of this passage. Love is something that has been done for you because Jesus has done these things. He's been suffering, long-suffering with you. He's been kind and humble and gentle. He's not easily angered with you. He hasn't kept a record of all your wrongs. He's always protecting you, always believing in you, always rooting for you, always interceding for you. Jesus never fails. You. Love is a person. God is love. Love is something done to you. Love is something done for you. And from that, that love overflows out of our lives from the lover of our soul who's taken up residence there. On the night Jesus was betrayed, that last supper, love got down on the ground around dirty feet, God in a body, washing dirty feet, doing the job nobody else wanted as a slave to wash feet And then love gets up and goes out and pays for the sins of the world, though he was guilty of not one sin. See, love was done for you. Love was done to you. Love has come into you, 
And from that love and the union with your Lord of love comes any hope of loving at all. You will notice that he does say, if you do these things and have not love, the question isn't, are you a loving person? Scale to one to ten. No. Don't look at it that way. You either have love or you don't. That's what Paul is saying. You either have Jesus or you don't. That is the question of how we cooperate with the Lord of love in our hearts and lives that he is able to love through us. So 10 years ago, a few months before this church started, I was in a hospital bed for 63 days at UCSF. The doctor told me my odds of survival had dropped to 40%. Things were looking very grim, and I felt my life ebbing away. I felt like I was on my deathbed. Just a few months before this church started... And I remember thinking, God, I have nothing. I'm on disability. I'm broke. I have failed my chemotherapy. I failed radiation. This is it. It's over. My kids couldn't come up and visit me because they were, had germs. You know, kids. <laughs> they got a lot of germs. It was the darkest time in my life, and I just thought, it's done. I had nothing to do in ministry. I had been replaced. And I read this passage. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Love never fails. And in my heart, in that hospital room, I heard the Lord say to my heart, I'm not done with you. And it's this love that never fails, that always protects, that always endures, that always believes in you, that has gotten me through. So I say to you, this morning you either have love or you don't. You can receive and have that kind of love in your heart simply by asking him to come in to forgive your sins to be your lord and you will start to live this adventure of a lifetime with that that starts the way it finishes with face to face to a person and he says you know what you may say i have that kind of love you have that love and you may say this but my love is sketchy and spotty and inconsistent at best. I can't see things very clearly. It's like looking in a fogged up mirror. I don't have it all together. One minute I'm kind, the next minute I snap. One minute I'm really polite, and the next minute I'm rude. One minute I'm long-suffering, and the next minute I'm making someone else suffer long. And Paul says, perfection is coming. You will see him face to face, and when you see him face to face, you shall be like him. 
No more of this. Your body will do as God has designed it to do. Your relationships will be as God has purposed them to be. The earth will function the way God originally ordained it to be because we will be face to face with the living God. And when we see him, John says, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. So concentrate not on flashcards of patience and uh, not rejoicing with evil and all of those things. No, no, no. Wrong way. Concentrate on the person of love, what he did for you and what he's doing in you, and concentrate on that day that's coming when you will see him face to face and you'll grow up. You'll, you'll put away your childish toys and, and you'll stop playing your childish games because you're living with the real sense of the reality that sooner than later, I'm going to be face to face with the God who spoke and the universe leapt into being, the one who created me in my mother's room. He says, live for that day. Get closer to the Lord of love Get closer to the long-suffering one, and you will be more long-suffering. Get more understanding and increase the bond that you have with the one who is never rude, and you will be less rude. It's in our closeness and intimacy and understanding through the scriptures, through prayer, through Christian fellowship, through the Christian disciplines, that as we unite our souls with the one who is love, love flows more gracefully and freely from our hearts and lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this challenge in the new year to see the importance of love, to understand how you define it, and to resolve in our hearts to allow you as the God of love to control our hearts and overflow our, our lips and our lives with this wonderful love. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.